Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, in 1968, um, two social psychologists, a man named John Darley and Bib Latanay, uh, published some very surprising and counterintuitive research about the ways and the dynamics that people act according to when they are in groups. What they found was that when individuals are in groups, they are less likely to help, to act in an emergency situation than when they are on alone. Uh, the basic idea runs like this. If, if an individual comes across an emergency situation and they know that they're the only one around, they're the only one who can provide help, that individual feels a high level of responsibility. I've got to do something. It rests on me. And so they go and they make a call for help. They offer any assistance they can. There's a pretty good correlation with that. But if you put that same individual into a group, a crowd, and this crowd is together watching an emergency situation unfold, each of those individuals in that group is, each of them individually or together, less likely to act than if they were there alone. Now, usually if you have a large enough crowd, someone is willing to act, someone is willing to do something, but if you've ever taken CPR training, this is why one of the first steps is after, after everything happens, after you, you, know, you realize the person is not just sleeping or something, that there's an actual emergency, you point to someone and you say, you, call 911 now. It's because you've got to give someone that individual responsibility, or the chances are that everyone will just be in, in shock, thinking someone else is going to take care of it, that no one will actually call 911. This came to be called the bystander effect, that everyone hesitates, everyone hesitates to act, to thinking that someone else is going to rise to the occasion. Now, often when we hear stories like that, the key question we may be thinking is, well, what happens if I'm in trouble? Who do I actually want to come find me? Do I want just one person? Do I want a group and take my chances? Who's going to help me when I need it? But the Bible asks a very different question, and asks, asks that question a lot, especially here. The Bible often asks that if you are in an emergency situation, if you are in need of help, the question is not so much, will someone help you? The question is, are you willing to ask the one who can help you to help you? Are you willing to ask the son of David for the mercy that you need or will you not? Now, it seems like that would be a no-brainer. seems like it'd be a simple question. Of course, if I need help, I'll ask for the help. But what happens in real life and what we see again and again reflected on the pages of Scripture is that that question is not so simple as we think it is. Our big idea today, this morning, is going to focus on the source of our help. 
that Jesus is the merciful son of David. You know, we sing, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? Well, our help is in Jesus. Jesus is the merciful son of David. But as we consider this big idea that Jesus is the merciful son of David, we're going to look at three reactions to that fact, three reactions to that reality that we see in this passage. The first is this, realizing the significance of Jesus' power, realizing the significance of Jesus' power. The second reaction is recognizing the singularity of Jesus' power, recognizing the singularity of Jesus' power. And third, rejecting the source of Jesus' power, rejecting the source of Jesus' power. So the first point we have to look at is realizing the significance of Jesus' power in this magnificent story of these two blind men. We read in verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, Jesus is always going or going to or from someplace. Here he is again on his way. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, this title, son of David, is interesting. This is not the first time in the gospel of Matthew that we have seen Jesus called the son of David. In fact, if you remember, the very first verse of Matthew begins on that note. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So we've known from the very beginning, literally the very beginning, that Jesus is the son of David. I think I mentioned this uh, when I was preaching back on that first verse, uh, that I was once in a conversation with a Jewish rabbi at an airport and was asking him spiritual questions. I asked him, why do you not believe in Jesus? And he says, well, he's not the son of David. And I said, well, you got to read the gospel. you got to go right into the very first words of the very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament that Jesus is the son of David. That may not be a big question on your minds, but I guarantee you it is a big question on Jewish minds. Because for the Jews, the title son of David talks about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And the son of David is the heir to the throne of David. And as these two blind men realized the Messiah, the son of David to come means that he would bring great power. He would bring the power of God, the kingdom of God, including to open the eyes of the blind. Now we're going to see the Jewish people and Jesus wrestling with this statement, the son of David, throughout the rest of this gospel. Uh, later in Matthew 21, verses 15 through 16, when Jesus is again hailed as the son of David, the chief priests and the scribes are going to try to stop people from calling Jesus by this title. But the very first people to call Jesus are right here when we see two blind men acknowledging that Jesus is the son of David. These two blind men see more clearly than anyone else so far in this gospel. That's not by mistake that Matthew wants us to see this, because they see not with their eyes, their physical eyes, but they see by faith. Well, how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 28, when he entered the house, now stop there for a moment. This is really interesting. If you remember what we've seen so far, and if you remember the last passage, Jesus is constantly being interrupted. And Jesus, far from seeing interruptions as something that he wants to do away with, oh, there they go again, got to respond to this need now and that need again, uh, we saw in the last passage that Jesus immediately responds with a heart of compassion. Someone says, and, and it comes to him and says, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus up and went with him. He rose and followed that man to go help that little girl. Then 
Along the way, behold, another woman comes along suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is chapter 9, verse 20. And she interrupts Jesus by touching the fringe of his garment so that she is healed. And Jesus doesn't turn around and say, how dare you touch me? Don't you know that I'm on my way to help someone? He turns around and kindly says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus is always being interrupted and is always responding immediately. But here, Jesus doesn't respond to the interruption of two blind men declaring, have mercy on us, son of David. In fact, the way Matthew writes this, he doesn't come right out and say it, but the way this is narrated, especially in the context of all the ways that Jesus responds to these other interruptions, is that Jesus ignored these two men as they chased him down the street crying out to him, have mercy on him, son of David, so that he doesn't interact with them until they go into the house. Now, why is this? Well, probably two reasons. The first is that Jesus could not publicly claim that he was the son of David, not because he was not the son of David. He was the son of David, just sort of straighten out that double negative. Rather, he could not publicly claim to be the son of David because people had misapprehensions, had misunderstandings of who the son of David would be. See, the people wanted a political king, someone like David with a sword in his fist, as a song I really like talks about, a really strong political leader. And I'm not talking about politics so much like we think about sometimes. I'm talking about politics in the sense of establishing policies at the tip of a spear by physical force. They wanted that kind of a political son of David king who would usher in the kingdom of this world. Now, Jesus was the son of David. He is the son of David. Matthew tells us from the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus is the son of David, but he was not that kind of a son of David. So Jesus could not publicly acknowledge, oh, here I am, that's me, I'm the son of David, because that would give all the people, all the crowds, the wrong kind of ideas. And so instead, Jesus has this conversation in private. But the second thing that Jesus does, notice in verse 28, that he probes their faith. He wants to see what is actually driving them. And so he asks them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He asks whether they believe that Jesus would be able to heal them. And I love uh, one commentator, a man named Osborne. He writes that their answer is immediate and decisive. And that's a great way to characterize what these men say. They say, yes, Lord. Yes, sir. It's an immediate and decisive answer that acknowledges that they see clearly the reality that this is truly the son of David, that this is the one who comes to bring the kingdom of God, that this man's power can heal them of their blindness. And so in verse 29, Jesus touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, as many commentators point out, this phrase, in, uh, according to your faith, does not mean in proportion to your faith but simply in response to your faith, because of your faith. And so we read that in verse 30, their eyes were opened. Now, we should understand the connection. These are the men who see most clearly so far the reality of who Jesus is as the son of David. Because their eyes of faith had been opened, because they saw Jesus clearly by faith, now their physical eyes have been opened by Jesus' healing power. According to your faith, be it done to you. But then in verse 30, we read, And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. This word for sternly warned is used twice in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 11, talking about Jesus' rage-filled grief 
over the death of his friend Lazarus. He grieves, he rages. It, 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 it's a word that gets at like an animal snorting. Now, sternly warned is maybe even a slightly, too slightly, uh, too weakly translated here. But what Jesus is doing is he is wanting to make sure, doing the best he can to try to rein in the news that he is the son of David. Because again, he knows that everyone will understand that term in its mistaken sense. And it will prevent people from seeing clearly what this son of David has come to do, not to establish his kingdom at the tip of a spear, but to be pierced by that tip of a spear on a cross as he gave up his life for his people. But in verse 31, we read that nevertheless, this miracle is too great. The stern warning of Jesus notwithstanding, these men couldn't help it. They just had to tell people what Jesus had done for them, and they spread his fame everywhere. Now, we must see what's happening here. These men both recognized that Jesus had power, and they realized the significance of his power, that he was able to help them. That's Jesus' son of David nature. He was able to help them. But more than that, they realized that the son of David would be merciful to them. Have mercy on us, son of David. He was not only able, he was willing to help them. Now, again, their actions seem perfectly obvious. If you were blind and Jesus was here, wouldn't you go to Jesus? Isn't this obvious? What blind person wouldn't ask Jesus for sight? But as we are going to see in the rest of the reactions in this story, their action may be correct, but it is by far, or far from universal. These two men had a disability, to be sure. But they also had three advantages that are not shared by the other people who are reacting to them. They knew that they needed Jesus to help them. Not only did they know that they needed Jesus to help them, they wanted Jesus to help them. That's an advantage that not everyone else has. But the third thing is they believed that Jesus wanted to help them. They knew they had a problem. They wanted Jesus to help them. And they, they knew that Jesus wanted to help them. As John Calvin writes, our knowledge of Christ's power will be cold and unprofitable if we are not convinced of his willingness. It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus can do something. It's an entirely different thing to trust that he wants to do it for you. And as we're going to see, that's the problem in the next reaction. In the next section, the crowds may realize there's something extraordinary about this Jesus, that his power is singular, it is unprecedented, it is without parallel, but they're not willing to act on that basis. So now we come to the second section, the second reaction, recognizing the singularity, again, the, the unprecedented nature of Jesus' power in verses 32 and 33. We read in 32, as they were going away, again, Jesus is on his way, moving here and there. As they were going away, behold, another interruption. A demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Now, this demon-oppressed man is mute, or you might translate this as deaf, or maybe it means both, because he was afflicted by a demon. We don't have any sense that this is something that was from birth. Uh, it seems directly tied to his being afflicted by the demon. But then look at verse 33. How does Jesus respond? And the answer is, we're not told. In verse 33, it says, and when the demon had been cast out. Now, who did it? Well, Matthew doesn't actually even tell us. Now, we know, based on the reaction, that Jesus is the one who has done this. That's exactly what Matthew wants us to know. But notice that Matthew doesn't say a word about this. If you remember, when Jesus cast out the demons in the Gadarenes, 
but they went into the pigs and crashed into the sea. We didn't hear much in Matthew about casting out those demons. We heard one word from Jesus. Jesus only said, go, and they went. And that one word underscored the great power of Jesus. Well, now the way Matthew writes this, where again, we don't have much of a story of Jesus doing, waving his hands or saying some magic words or doing some great act to perform this exorcism of casting out the demon. And the reason that Matthew tells us almost nothing about this is he wants the spotlight cast not on what Jesus has done so much as on the reaction of what Jesus had done. And so look at what the crowds did at the end of 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. His, this is unprecedented. Now, probably this reaction is meant to not only talk about the healing of this particular demoniac, this particular demon-possessed man, but in, in the book of Matthew, we're coming to the end of a major section. This is the very end of a series of cycles. If, if you've been uh, paying attention, we've seen Jesus healing a number of people, uh, raising a little girl from the dead, healing someone with a, a, a discharge of blood. Uh, he's been um, healing demoniacs. He's been healing different people with different uh, sicknesses, uh, the paralytic, on and on and on. We're coming to the end of a series of healings. And now we're getting the reaction to all of those healings together. Just as in the same way when we came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of Matthew 5 through 7, that section of Jesus' teaching, we got a reaction. Do you remember it? At the end of uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through 29, we read, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, here at the end, we get almost a similar reaction. The crowds marveled, and they said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. They acknowledged that Jesus is not only teaching, but now his healing power is singular. It is unprecedented. It is without parallel. But notice what's lacking. They don't confess Jesus as the son of David. They don't ask Jesus for mercy. They've seen Jesus extend mercy. They know that he is able and that he is willing, but they don't want it and they don't ask for it. Theologians speak of three parts to saving faith. When we talk about faith, it's important that we understand what we're talking about. Why Jesus says, according to your faith, so be it done to you. Uh, it's important that we know what we mean when we talk about faith. Well, theologians say uh, real faith involves three parts. First of all, it involves knowledge. You have to know something. Again, these blind men knew something. They knew that Jesus was the son of David. But it also means that you assent to that knowledge. You recognize this is more than a, a myth or some kind of uh, made-up story. You recognize this is God's truth. You agree that it's true. But it's not enough just to go that far. It's not enough just to have knowledge and to have assent to the truth. Because as James writes in James 2, verses 19, even the demons believe in this sense, and they shudder. Well, in a similar way, the crowd recognizes. They have knowledge, and they assent to that knowledge. Never was anything like this before seen in Israel. But what they don't have is the third part of true, saving, genuine faith. They don't trust Him. Whereas the blind men were crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd marvels at what Jesus does, but they don't ask him to show them mercy. And indeed, we see the fruitlessness of their dead faith, as later on it'll be this same crown that doesn't worship Jesus, but later eventually demands his own crucifixion. 
Now, why did the crowd behave this way? If, if here is the son of David, if here is the one who has come to save his people, why don't they trust him? It's because they don't know that they personally need Jesus' help. It's something like a reverse bystander effect. You know, in a bystander effect, you know, if, if someone like me, if I had a heart attack or something, there's a big crowd here, a lot of you would be in shock. Maybe some of you would think to call 911. Please call 911, by the way, if that were to happen. But the, with a big crowd, each individual is less likely to do anything. Well, this is like a reverse bystander effect. Here's a crowd, and they're seeing Jesus, and no one is willing to ask him to help them. No individual knows that they need his help and is willing to ask, have mercy on us, son of David. You may know that one of the most dangerous, debilitating medical problems that someone can have is to suffer a stroke. You may have known someone with a stroke. Strokes can have long-lasting impact. They can cause brain damage, body paralysis, speech inhibition, emotional and behavioral changes. These things are horrible. If you've ever met someone who has suffered a stroke, you know they are generally not the same person ever again. And with that knowledge, with the knowledge that there's a blood clot in the brain and it's causing parts of the brain to die and brain damage like that, shouldn't people jump at treatment when they have a stroke? The first three hours are critical. Every minute counts in preserving brain tissue by getting that blood flow back to the brain. But the astonishing thing about a stroke is that governments, not just in our country, but around the world, have to pour an incredible amount of money into trying to raise awareness of a stroke, not to convince people that strokes are bad, but to help people to recognize that they are having a stroke when they are having it. You may know the FAST acronym. You're supposed to look at the, someone's face. F, does it droop? You're supposed to have them lift their arms. A, does one start to slide over? That could be a sign of a stroke. What about speech? Is it slurred? F-A-S. And then the T stands for time. You need to call an ambulance ASAP, A-S-A-P. The biggest problem is not that people should get the treatment, not that people would want the treatment. It's not that there is treatments that exist or, or that fail to exist. The biggest problem is that people don't realize that they have a problem until it's too late, until the damage is sent in that much. Well, if that's true for this life, for our bodies in this world which are decaying and, and fading away, how much more is this true for our eternal soul? Do we realize that we have a problem and the merciful son of David alone can help us? The response of this crowd goes so far. They acknowledge there's no one like Jesus. He is singular. And while that is true, it doesn't mean that their faith is genuine and saving. And yet it does go further than others in that crowd. Because they recognize the truth about Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees, the Pharisees uh, do something entirely different. See, the crowds don't know that they need for help. The Pharisees don't want Jesus' help in the least. And so this brings us to the third reaction of rejecting the source of Jesus' power. Look at verse 34. This is the third reaction. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, observe from this that the Pharisees do not question whether Jesus possesses remarkable power. Maybe the Pharisees were able to join with the crowd in saying nothing like this has ever been done in Israel, but they have an explanation for this. They don't reject whether Jesus has power. They question 
the source of Jesus' power, and they attribute to Jesus' power demonic power. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, um, one commentator, Lenski, points out that later on the Pharisees are going to see the same thing again in 12 verse 24. This seems to be their particular comeback whenever Jesus casts out demons. It was a great thing to cast out demons, and when Jesus does it, they cannot attribute that to God and give glory to God. Rather, they contrive a twisted demonic explanation for the salvation of God who has come into their midst. Now, it's bad not to recognize a problem. It's far worse to reject help altogether. But one of the effects of pride, and the Pharisees are filled with pride, is to refuse help, even when you know that you will be destroyed without it. Children, um, do some of you know the story of the ten plagues in Israel, uh, where Moses leads the, chil- the children of Israel out of Egypt, and along the way, God brings ten plagues. Well, if you know your plagues, when there's seven plagues in, Moses goes in to warn Pharaoh about yet another plague. Now, this time, uh, after their livestock had already died and, their, and hail had damaged all their crops, we read in Exodus 10, verse 7, uh, that, Moses, or that Pharaoh's servants warn him. After Moses says that locusts are going to come, locusts are fat grasshopper things that eat a lot of crops, they'll devour everything that's left after the hail so that Egypt will have no more food. Pharaoh's servants say to Pharaoh, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Children, do you ever get so mad that you don't want help from your parents, from your friends, or anybody else? That's how Pharaoh was, and that's how the Pharisees are. Even when God could help them, even when Jesus is the merciful son of David, they don't want his help because they can do it by themselves. And to acknowledge that they need Jesus is to acknowledge weakness, and they cannot do that because they're proud. The Bible says that we must be careful not to harden our hearts against God's salvation. My application this morning as we think about these three reactions is to be like the two blind men. Particularly, it's to cry out to Jesus, the son of David, for mercy. But we need to ask, are we like the Pharisees in their reaction? This morning, your heart may be like the Pharisees. Maybe you do reject Jesus' power as demonic. Or maybe you reject Jesus' power by attributing it to something far worse, to mythology or superstition, and you just dismiss it altogether. Well, this morning, as you have heard the Word of God, you've been given knowledge. But perhaps you refuse to assent to the knowledge you have from the Bible as true. Certainly, if your heart is like the Pharisees, you're not trusting in that truth for yourself. But Jesus is calling you, even this morning, to repent to swallow your pride, to submit to Him as the rightful King, the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of David, to renounce the sovereign claims that you place over your own life, and instead to bend the knee to the heir to the throne of David. See, with this call to repentance, Jesus is offering a warning and a promise. Both of these are found in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, one of the greatest psalms in all the Psalter. In Psalm 2, verses 10 through the first part of 12, we read, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, that's a kiss of submission, recognizing a Lord over you, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. 
The Pharisees were those who were rulers in their day, religious leaders. They raged and they plotted against Jesus. And for a time, it seemed that they had succeeded when they were able to crucify Jesus and to see him killed. But they plotted in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. On the third day, the Messiah, the son of David, Jesus Christ as king, arose from the dead, conquering his enemies of sin, death, and the devil forever, and therefore conquering all those who persist in standing in opposition against him. Will you not repent this morning? Will you continue to set yourself against the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the one who died but who is now alive forevermore, the one who holds the keys to death in Hades? Will you not repent and turn to him? Jesus offers you a warning, but he also offers you a promise. Immediately after that warning in Psalm 2, the very next half of Psalm 2 verse 12 says this, that blessed are all who take refuge in him. All means all. All may come to him. And Jesus promises that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You, even you may come today, no matter how hard your heart has been. When you come to him by repentance from your sins and faith in Jesus as your Savior, Jesus promises that you will be blessed for taking refuge in him. And all this begins so simply. By swallowing your applied, by approaching him like the blind men, by calling out to him, have mercy on me, son of David. Do you want his salvation? But perhaps your heart is not like the Pharisees. Certainly it's dangerous to have a heart like the Pharisees, but in some ways it's perhaps even more dangerous to have a heart like the crowds, and maybe that's where your heart is this morning. It's dangerous to have the heart like the crowds because you know that you're perhaps not in open rebellion against Jesus, but there's a deception. The crowds believed, but only by assenting to the truth, and they did not trust in him, and so their faith did not save him. Is your heart like the crowds? Will you continue to come near to Jesus while you yet keep him at arm's length? Will you continue to move with the crowds surrounding Jesus but never come to know him personally? Will you continue to watch and see all that Jesus has done in the lives of others here and marvel, saying, I've never seen anything like this outside the church, but then refuse to seek from him the mercy that you know that you need? What sets the blind men apart what makes them see clearly is that they know they need Jesus. When you're blind, you can't trick anyone. You have no appearances to keep. You can't fake it till you make it. These men simply know that they need Jesus' mercy, and they're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to make a scene. They're willing to chase him down the street saying, have mercy on a son of David, in order to get that mercy from him. They trust him, knowing that he is able. He is the son of David. And knowing that he is willing, he is merciful. He's the merciful son of David. What about you? Do you trust in him? Do you believe that he is able? Are you crying out to the son of David for mercy? All of this tells us, check your reaction. Check your heart. Don't just follow along and nod. How are you responding to Jesus, the merciful son of David? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for your people. We thank you for your kindness. And we thank you that your son Jesus is the merciful son of David who ushers in a kingdom that cannot perish or spoil or fade away. 
with an inheritance laid up for all those who love Jesus. And we pray that some here even this morning would turn to him in repentance and faith. Not simply agreeing that he is there, but trusting in him. Trusting that he will be merciful to them. We pray that you would shepherd these sinners as sheep into your kingdom forever and ever by faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.